Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 8th of November, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, myself, Brian Gerrish, delighted to be with uh, Mike Robinson. And uh, we've also got Debbie Evans, our nursing correspondent. Um, we're going to start off with the King's speech, which, of course, took place yesterday. Uh, here he is entering, well, to sit on the throne and uh, deliver the speech. Now, of course, he doesn't write it. The government writes it for him. Uh, and, uh, well, anybody that was listening to it will understand how enthusiastic he was for the whole thing. Uh, so just to give you a, a, a flavour of it, let's just have a brief uh, listen to a little of, of what he had to say. My lords and members of the House of Commons, it is mindful of a legacy of service and devotion to this country set by my beloved mother, the late Queen, that I deliver this, the first King's speech, in over 70 years. The impact of COVID and the war in Ukraine have created significant long-term challenges for the United Kingdom. That is why my government's priority is to make the difficult but necessary long-term decisions to change this country for the better. So the government's going to change the country for the better. That is the claim of uh, King Charles as he read the King's speech. Uh, and uh, so let's just uh, have a look at how, how much of a comedy show that uh, that statement is. Uh, so let's look at some of the key legislation. Uh, a criminal justice bill, uh, that's going to introduce measures to force criminals to appear in the dock. Okay, but get this, it's going to give police new powers to enter buildings without a warrant. Uh, to see stolen goods. So if they suspect, maybe perhaps there might be uh, what evidence is going to be required. The whole point about a warrant is you've got to prevent, present some evidence uh, and justify the issuance of a warrant, but that's not going to be necessary anymore. Uh, the investigatory powers amendment bill, uh, this will give law enforcement agencies greater access to certain personal data and make tech companies uh, clear security features with the Home Office. So the tech companies have to ask the Home Office for permission if they're implementing security features like end-to-end -end encryption, for example. Uh, we're going to have more on that in a second. Uh, renters Reform Bill, this is all about this uh, idea of uh, a no-fault eviction. Uh, so they are finally going to do that, uh, except maybe they're not because they're only going to do that after they've done reform of the courts. Uh, so we'll have more on that in a future uh, UK column news. Uh, the Automated Vehicles Bill, this is all, all about uh, making it possible for uh, self-driving cars on the roads. Um, then we have the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill. Uh, this is replacing the uh, current data protection regime, uh, which the UK is worried was inher inherited from the EU. Uh, this is about enabling international data flows and uh, digital ID. We'll see that a bit more about that in one second as well. Uh, and finally, the media bill, which is even more censorship as if we needed it. So let's uh, look at the first one of these that we want to look at in detail. This is the revised Invest Investigatory Powers Act. Uh, this uh, new bill is going to make amendments to the Investigatory Powers Act. Uh, now, there was a consultation, as you can see on screen, that was held and closed in July. We spoke about this at the time, but just to remind you what this does, it, it creates a new set of notices. So first of all, we've got data retention notices. Uh, which require the retention of communications data by operators. So that might be your phone company, it might be Telegram, it might be WhatsApp, uh, these types of uh, platforms. Uh, technical capability notices require operators to provide and maintain technical capabilities enabling them to, to respond to uh, investigatory powers 
authorization. So in other words, create a backdoor uh, to your encryption uh, so that you can um, gather data about communications between people on your platforms. Um, national security notices require the telecommunications operator to take such specified steps as the Secretary of State considers necessary in the interests of national security. This may include providing services or facilities for the purpose of facilitating or assisting an intelligence service to carry out its functions. So it's an enabling clause for spying. Uh, and then, of course, we've got this issue, which is the Investigatory Powers Act also specifies that those persons in receipt of a notice or any person employed or engaged for the purposes of that person's business. So if that's if you, if you are a telegram, a representative telegram, an employee of telegram, you must not disclose the existence or contents of the notice to any other person without the permission of the Secretary of State. Uh, for this reason, it is Home Office policy to neither confirm or deny the existence of any notices. So you're not allowed to tell the person on the receiving end of the notice uh, that you have received the notice and that they are being spied upon. And that, of course, is the D-notice system, which has been in place for a great many years. No, this is a completely new thing. Uh, no, but the, the who you can tell about it, it coming in is the same system. A D-notice, sorry, is the same uh, procedure. I know this is different, but yep. you, you put something in place which gags people, but they can't say it's in place. That's correct. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Then let's have a look at the Data Protection and Digital Information Bill. Uh, this is all about introducing a simple, clear and business friendly framework that will not be difficult or costly to implement. So this, again, is about removing data protection regulation uh, and effectively making it a free for all uh, with what companies do with our data, which includes health data uh, and every other kind of data that you can imagine. Uh, they are going to ensure that the new regime maintains data adequacy with the EU. Well, we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the program about how adequate uh, EU data laws uh, are, are as of today. Uh, then further reduce the amount of paperwork organizations need to complete when they're sharing data. Provide organizations with greater confidence about when they can process personal data without your consent uh, and uh, increase public and business confidence in AI technologies. That's already been uh, in place as we've been talking about over the last week or so. Uh, they want to unleash more scientific research through this, of course. They want to reduce unnecessary paperwork even further, as if they hadn't already said they were going to do that. Uh, and they want to increase public and business confidence in AI, as we just said. Uh, but they want to support international data sharing is the key point of this bill. Uh, so then, of course, what does this enable? It enables digital identity. Uh, the government is not making digital identities mandatory, they had said in an earlier statement. But of course, they are making it mandatory, for example, with the one login system on the gov.uk website. Now, uh, we were talking about, uh, we've been talking in the past number of weeks about One Health. Uh, one login is another one. Uh, and anytime we see the word one, we get the idea that there's a global uh, policy agenda at work here. Uh, so anyway, sticking with digital identity, the key thing is that this uh, digital identity the policy that the government is pushing for will be in, underpinned by legislation. That is the legislation we've just been speaking about. Uh, and of course, it, it allows providers, uh, third party providers to provide digital identity or attribute services. Uh, it relies on certifying bodies to certify against standards. Uh, they talk about use case schemes uh, that are looking to build on standards. Uh, and the fact that employers, businesses and other bodies knowing, known as relying parties uh, will want to use digital identity services. Uh, and here's another one 
if we're talking about ones, this is one trust. Uh, and this uh, is was the, the, a blog post on the one trust website about global cross-border privacy rules. Uh, so now we're not talking about GDPR, uh, we're talking about CBPR. Uh, and uh, they held this forum, which is four days of workshops earlier in the year, uh, to lead a global discussion between government officials, regulators, and privacy experts exploring how global privacy regimes can be more compatible and improve data transfers. And of course, when they're saying can be more compatible, they mean more compatible with their desire to see zero regulation in this area. Um, so uh, we will be talking a little bit more about digital ID a little bit later. Um, did you have something? No, was there another slide to come on this one? No, no, we are not heading off. Oh, sorry, media bill. Yes, sorry, just very briefly, just very briefly mentioned the media bill because, of course, this is all about uh, enabling Ofcom to uh, uh, enabling Ofcom to regulate video on demand. Right. Okay. Well, I think we're passing over to um, Debbie. Debbie, and uh, you're on to the interesting subject of dual nationality amongst our MPs. Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. Well, actually, this segment's going to be more of a question for everyone and for our audience, certainly. I hope it brings up some debate because we talk about revolving doors all the time. We talk about conflicts of interests, and my goodness, don't we have a lot of those, especially within the MHRA board, as we know. But that took me on to thinking about conflicts of interest. What's the definition? And I happened to come across this Wikipedia page that was talking about the convention on certain questions relating to the conflict of nationality laws. So conflicts within nationality. And this was a League of Nations convention um, adapted during the League of Nations codification conference in 1930. And apparently it was the first international attempt to ensure that all natural persons had a nationality and to resolve some of the issues from conflicts of possible nationalities. So that took me back to thinking, oh, well, Brexit. I remember that a lot of people were applying for um, dual nationality to make sure they guaranteed the same rights and freedom of movement in Europe. So it took me back to a BBC article back in 2019. Um, and it, it clearly shows that, yes, there was an uptick, a big uptick of people applying for dual nationality, but some countries don't allow dual nationality. Um, Austria, for example, don't allow it. Germany doesn't usually allow dual nationality and other countries have specifications. So, that took me to the next slide, which, I mean, you'll see the, the headline here from the London Economic, which is, have hundreds of British MPs and Lords really applied for an Irish passport since Brexit? And this has been fact-checked. And this has all come about because Chris Bryant retweeted a tweet from someone called Dennis McShane to say that in 2016, only 47 British MPs and Lords held an Irish passport. By 2021, that figure went up to 227. And in 200, uh, 2022, there are now 321 of them with an Irish passport. Now, this has not been verified and nobody seems to know what the truth is. However, I can understand why nobody knows the truth because it I'm not sure that anybody knows the truth. So the article goes on to reveal a freedom of information request that was put in in 2018 
to determine how many MPs were dual or multiple nationals or not a UK citizen at all. I'd never even given that any any thought until I'd read this. And you can see there that the information is not held by the House of Commons. And they say that members of Parliament are not employees. And whilst they've got some partial data to countries of birth, none of it has been fully verified. Well, this isn't the only freedom of information that's been put in. So I went to look at uh, a few more. And here we've got another one from IPSO, which is the in Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority. And you can see there that the request again is, please, could you tell me which MPs hold a dual passport? Um, and, and actually, they even ask for specification, but they don't have the information either. And another in, in a freedom of information posted on what do they know, how many MPs have dual nationality, they don't seem to know either. So no one seems to have any sight of any MP's nationality, which took me to the House of Commons library because I thought, well, maybe there's some information there. And I, the only information that I could find in this on the social background of members of Parliament 1979 to 2019 were the next few statistics that you'll see but nothing mentions nationality. So you can see that there were 220, this was as a result of the 2019 election, there were 220 female MPs elected, uh, 65 MPs were from minority ethnic backgrounds, uh, there were 46 LBGT MPs elected, most conservatives, um, conservative MPs came from fee-paying schools, and shockingly, 140 MPs elected in 2019 had no previous parliamentary experience, which really just leads me to the question of who is governing our country if we don't know someone's nationality or if they have dual nationality or if they're married to somebody from another country, where do their loyalties lie? Do they lie with us in the UK? So that's a question for everybody. OK, Debbie, thank you very much for that. And we'll look straight at the audience and say, please help us dig into this, because, of course, it seems the research is difficult and many hands make light work. Now, I just wanted to bring up the subject of Ukraine because, of course, the horrors of the war in Ukraine continue. There's still um, tough fighting going on all along the border. The Russians are now making great efforts to take strategic areas such as Adivka, um, and the bloodshed continues, casualties on both sides, but of course it's Ukraine that's taken uh, the brunt of the casualties. But have they? Um, let's have a look at some headlines and see how um, interesting and devious the network is around uh, Ukraine. So this is Business Insider. US officials are concerned that Ukraine is, quote, running out of troops and have hinted at peace talks with Russia. So effectively, um, Ukraine's got through two, two armies. Um, you can do the calculations yourself on that. Um, but this is one of the quotes which caught my eye. While the US and allies can provide Ukraine with weapons, if they don't have competent forces to use them, it doesn't do a lot of good. Um, neither Russia nor Ukraine confirm numbers of their casualties. And then it's got a, a link to Western estimates. Let's just highlight that. Well, if you click that link, remembering that this article is the 4th of November 
uh, this year, um, it takes you to this article, which is more than two months old. Um, so this is how vague data circulating on the casualty, but US estimates almost 500,000 combined Russian and Ukrainian military casualties fighting in the conflict so far. Um, but the strange thing is that according to Ukraine, it's an army that fights without any casualties at all. But uh, is the West, is the United States, is NATO, the EU, actually calling for any form of uh, peace talks. Uh, well, Reuters here with a headline, Western officials broach with Kiev the issue of possible peace talks with Moscow. And this is, of course, because, of course, it is now obvious that the Ukrainian forces cannot sustain any form of offensive and are struggling in a defensive, taking heavy losses. Uh, but is, is that peace really going to come about? Uh, well, there were some quotes in this uh, article by Zelensky himself. He said, everybody knows my attitude, which coincides with the attitude of the Ukrainian society. Today, no one is putting pressure on me to negotiate for peace, not one of the leaders of the EU or the United States. So the right man in post, because he's going to keep the fighting going. For us now to sit down with Russia and talk and give it something, this will not happen. So the destruction of Ukraine as a uh, country continues, but there's no way we want peace. And Zelensky, the puppet, is definitely not going to call for it. So um, poisonous has the Ukraine theatre become. Uh, a very interesting headline from the Kiev Independent here. Media, Trump declined Zelensky's invite to Ukraine over a supposed conflict of interest. Now, what I think is really happening here is that, of course, Ukraine is now a poison chalice. It's descending into chaos. And the last thing that's going to happen is that Trump is going to blot his copybook by uh, visiting Ukraine. Much better to wait on the sidelines and allow the horrors and the tragedy of Ukraine to be hung around the neck of Biden. Mm. So a lot more to be said on the war in Ukraine. Um, in the meantime, in the Middle East, uh, well, U.S. Central Command has been tweeting this out a few days ago. On November the 5th, 2023, an Ohio-class submarine arrived in the U.S. Central Command area of responsibility. So apparently this submarine had been in the Red Sea. It's headed up into the Mediterranean. Uh, and, uh, well, this is Al, Al Monitor talking about it. Uh, they have named it, although the U.S. officials who announced this would not name the submarine. Uh, but they are saying that on Sunday, U.S. Central Command released imagery of the ship, which a spokesperson for the U.S. Navy's 5th Fleet declined to identify open source observers. And Fox News suggested uh, the vessel was the USS Florida, which is capable of carrying and delivering more than 150 Tomahawk cruise missiles and the Navy SEAL team. Now, they, did you want... I just wanted to, to highlight there that that's the Tomahawk missiles that when a huge barrage was fired against uh, Syria, the vast majority of those American missiles did not get anywhere near their targets due to Russian countermeasures. So it's the same missile. Right. And indeed, uh, the claim is that, that, these, that this uh, submarine has been sent there in order to try to uh, discourage the recent attacks on US military uh, personnel in Syria. Uh, so that's uh, that's what it's there for. Uh, in the meantime, uh, the Wall Street Journal is saying that Biden has uh, announced plans for $320 million worth of uh, weapons uh, to Israel as the Gaza toll mounts is their headline. 
Uh, and they're talking about this being the planned transfer of spiced family gliding bomb assemblies. Uh, so these are uh, guided bombs. Uh, under the agreement, the Wall Street Journal says uh, weapons, the, the manufacturer Rafael USA would transfer the bombs to its Israel parent company, Rafael uh, Advanced Defense Systems, for use by the Israel Defense Ministry. Uh, and it also includes the provision of support assembly testing and other technology related to the weapons use. Uh, and uh, so this is uh, more weapons going into Israel. Um, and well, we'll just mention that Netanyahu, Netanyahu was speaking exclusively to ABC News uh, yesterday uh, on the World News Tonight uh, to anchor David Muir, as they say on there. A one-to-one -one with Netanyahu, he is absolutely saying there'll be no ceasefire possible without the release of hostages, and certainly more weapons going there so implies that there is no, zero pressure uh, from uh, the uh, US or the UK uh, to do that. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, my question... Yeah, you're <laughs> speechless, say. Mike. Yes. It, it, it's very difficult to describe some of this because it's so, so appalling and wrong. So, look, the question is, uh, is there any opposition uh, to this war policy in the UK. What's the Labour Party's position? Many people will know this already, but uh, we were just, uh, I was listening to Bridget Phillipson on the Radio 4 Today programme. She's the Shadow Education Secretary uh, talking about uh, the Labour position. Let's just have a listen. Well, as Keir Starmer set out in his speech at Chatham House, it would freeze the conflict. In time, it risks allowing Hamas to regroup and to to perpetuate further uh, terrible atrocities that they've said that they want the opportunity to do. But that humanitarian pause to allow for extra time to get into, uh, for aid to get into Gaza is in line with what the US are calling for as well. I believe it's achievable. Not only is it achievable, mm -hmm. but I believe it is essential so that we can alleviate that suffering, get more aid in uh, and make sure that um, we don't see children yeah. as the innocent victims but of this conflict. I do understand how colleagues feel on this. I mean, we are all of us every day moved by what we see uh, on our television screens, what we read about, the full extent of not just the barbarity of what we saw on the 7th of October, but subsequently the humanitarian crisis that has emerged in Gaza. What we all want to see in our primary focus is on making sure that aid does get in, but also in the long run that we see a lasting political settlement. That is the only way through this. I mean, it feels very distant at the moment. I recognise that. But what we all want is a viable Palestinian state alongside a safe and secure Israel. That is the only answer. So what Hamas did was atrocious, uh, according to her. And But what Israel is doing is uh, a humanitarian crisis. I'm not yes. quite sure uh, and we're, that we're, works. We're presumably going to have a pause and get aid in. And the moment the aid's in, we continue the bombing and things carry on. This is very, very complex. But to me, it's obvious that the first thing that should happen is that there should be a cessation of the mass bombing of civilian areas. That is the thing which can happen immediately. Um, that's what Israel is capable of doing. And then you will have a very firm basis to help people in Gaza and also to start dealing with the terrorist element. But uh, in the meantime, the deaths continue. Yes, and, and the key point here is that for that to happen, it needs the support of our, our politicians in this country, and that's down to us. So, um, okay, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UKCOM does, you would like to support us, uh, you, options for you to do that at community.ukcolumn.org. Uh, that would be very much appreciated. Uh, you could pick something up at the UK Column shop. 
But please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Um, I want to mention that in a couple of weeks' time, on Sunday, the December the 3rd, uh, at 7 p.m. European time, so that'll be 6 p.m. UK time, uh, we will be uh, uh, presenting the first annual David Ray Griffin lecture on behalf of International Centre for 9-11 Justice. Uh, the speaker will be uh, Daniele uh, Ganser. And uh, so he, the, the, the main focus of this, well, first of all, I'll just say that this is going to be, this is the first of uh, an annual lecture series that's going to be held around this time of year, each year. Uh, it's intended to honour uh, Dr. Griffin's uh, immense contribution to the pursuit of truth and peace and to carry on his legacy of scholarship in search of these principles. So this is a, uh, event is called the Ruthless Empire Post 9-11. Uh, and Ganser is going to look at uh, the actions of the US government, the UK government, and so on that, that have taken place in the last 22 years or in the 22 years since 9-11. Uh, with the goal of uh, maintaining and expanding its global hegemony, particularly in Eastern Europe and parts of Asia. So th this is going to be a very interesting uh, evening, and uh, I do encourage everybody to join us for that. Um, Debbie, your blog is up. My blog is indeed. And, you know, I'm sorry I can't cover all the news stories, uh, health news stories on the news, but I'm hoping that you'll find that this is jam-packed. And there are pretty, there's some pretty shocking headlines there. Doctors warn that getting cancer in your 20s or 30s is now the norm. This is from a study in Florida. Vaccine shedding has finally been proven. Uh, could stroke be transmissible? And if so, how? And there's a low-cost mRNA vaccine platform uh, that's all attached to Bill Gates. You wouldn't be surprised about that. And I also look at the Future of Life Institute. Uh, more from our viewers. Thank you so much on future health. Um, so there's a lot there. And I'm also acknowledging that there have been two huge disasters, one in Nepal and one in Acapulco. So plenty to read in my blog this week. Thank you. And MHRA then, the board meeting, it's that yeah, time again. Yeah, tickets available, available. Please go and get your ticket. Um, Cheryl uh, Granger and myself, we're definitely going. Um, so please just, if you, if you struggle to find the link, just put in Eventbrite, MHRA board meeting, and the link to join will come up. So for the 21st of November um, at 10 o'clock. Uh, and we'll just say the link will be in the show notes uh, on, on the UK Column website for this as well. Uh, and uh, Brian. Uh, well, no, this, this one I was going to give to Debbie, actually. Tell us, tell us about the interview which has gone up on the site. Well, I was, I was just hugely privileged to, jo to be joined by two of our great friends, um, Headley Reese and Cheryl Granger. And we were talking about what is coming down, what should the public expect to come down the pharmaceutical pipeline? When you go to your doctor, when you go to your pharmacy, what questions should be what should you be asking and what should you be expecting? Okay, thank you for that. Now I'm just gonna put out a, a little video clip, which is an advert for an interview I did. This will go out uh, tomorrow. It's with an absolutely extraordinary uh, young lady who went uh, through a trafficking network to arrive in the sanctuary of UK to have her children taken. And I've chosen a little clip uh, at the end of the interview where she said something which was truly remarkable to me following the horrors that she had been through. So this interview will be up tomorrow, uh, going out tomorrow on UK Column, but let's look at what she had to say to me. What do you think about the United Kingdom now? 
What do you think about the country that you live in? It's one of the greatest civilizations on earth. It has more people doing good than harm. There are a lot more wonderful people in this country than those who are doing evil things. There are a lot of wonderful people in this great country that are doing good than those who are doing evil to people. And they, or they want to make us believe that they are more evil people, but no, that's not true. There are more wonderful people in this country. There are more wonderful people in this country than those who are doing things like the abuse I've endured, that the abuse my children have endured, that the abuse most people have endured. So trafficked, abused, children stolen by the British state, and that remarkable lady can still say that about the country in which she lives. Um, I think Debbie. we're back to Debbie. Yes, so these are going to be my observations, really. And uh, we've been looking at a lot of the work um, that, well, the collaborations between the United States, the collaborations within the European Union that have embedded themselves in the NHS. And Ben Rubin's been talking about Palantir. And also we spoke about NHS X and the interventions of Nicole Junkerman with Mossad. So I just wanted to explore any collaborations that there were between this time the Israel government and the UK government and how much of, of their collaborations were feeding in to the NHS now. So these are just my observations um, and comments as always very welcome from our audience. So my journey started in 2014 when I found this article in the BBC. Um, many people might remember it because I know UK Column have reported on it before, when David Cameron was Prime Minister and he said that um, his belief in Israel was unbreakable. And just take a note of the date there. It was the 12th of March 2014. And uh, on the very next day, on the UK Gov uh, website, it was announced on the 13th of March that 70 million in uh, 70 million pounds in Israel investment was coming to the UK. Now let's just look at those in a little bit more detail. So we've got 12 million going to um, Israeli pharmaceutical company Teva. Um, we've got energy as well, and we've got APOS therapy. Now that's a biomedical and um, therapy company that helps with rheumatoid arthritis and joints. So just let's look at Teva because that particularly jumped out at me. And indeed, here's their announcement to say that the collaboration on a national clinical drug development initiative um, is taking place with dementia research. And we're looking at 20 million in clinical development in the UK and 1 million into dementia. And just let's remember that Raj Long on the MHRA board and the UK HSA board um, has written the dementia plan for the UK, although she has no qualifications. So again, if we just jump forward again um, to 2017, I just want to highlight this gentleman, David Dangor. This was an article in the Jewish um, the Jewish Chronicle. And David Dangor is a philanthropist. And he decided in memory of his father, he's got quite an interesting history, and perhaps we'll talk about that a little bit in extra. But in, in um, memory of his father, he wanted to set up a digital health technology into the NHS um, from Israel. Um, and Indeed, if we jump forward and we can see that it didn't take long before that actually did happen and that 
the Israel ambassador, David Quarry, along with David Dangor, did indeed do that. And they launched the UK Israel Dangor Health Programme, which in turn fed into the UK NHS National Health Service. So we can see a lot of involvement there. And as soon as that had happened, we found that there was even more collaboration with studies that were going on between the UK and Israel. And in Siana, the Health Leaders Network brought out this article in 2018 to say that we were learning from each other. And indeed, in that same year, in 2018, NHSX was was formed. And this is a, a picture that I dug up. I mean, I had to really search for it, but this was the NHSX board, which was started in 2018. And that is actually Matt Hancock. I'm sorry, it's a bit blurry, but that is actually Matt Hancock in the middle. But the lady that I've circled in yellow is Nicole Junkerman, founder of NJF Holdings, an international finance and investment company. And I'd say to everybody, please go to Johnny Vedmore's uh, website because he's done a huge amount of work on Nicole um, Junkerman's connections with the Mossad, FIFA corruptions, the Panama Papers, etc. So there you have another connection. Then jumping forward to 2019, um, again in the Jewish Chronicle announced that the ex-ambassador to Israel has, was named as the new NHS tech chief. Uh, this is Matthew Gould. But although he was appointed and he was delighted to take on the job, it didn't last long because just moving forward, you'll find that he took up the lead post at London Zoo, which was a complete U-turn for him. But he said it was his dream job and that um, he was over the moon. However, in 2023, Matthew Gould has still obviously got his fingers very much in the digital pie because it was announced by Digital Health that he was going to join Quantexa. Now, Quantexa, are, they're, they're the rivals to Palantir who are trying to get the contract for NHS Digital. So there was obviously, um, he had to consult the Department of Health because he had to say, look, is this a conflict of interest? Because I know quite a lot about how you operate and Palantir are the rival. And they asked Palantir and Palantir said that, that there was actually no conflict of interest. So he was appointed to the advisory board of Quantexa. But it's um, it's also going back, I'm sorry, to the king, um, who at the time, Prince Charles, when he went to visit Jerusalem, I'm just showing you how many people are involved in this collaboration. And Prince Charles uh, said that Israel, Israeli genius was needed to maintain basically the NHS. And while he was there, he was presented with the sniff phone, which was an electronic nose that can detect diseases from breath. Um, and we know that that's happening at the moment. And he was also shown 3D printed hearts. Um, but where does the connection carry on? Well, it, of course, it carried on during the pandemic. And The Telegraph printed this um, article to say that we could learn a lot from Israel. So what do we learn from Israel this, this, this partnership is going to carry on. And very soon after that, there was another article published in the Jewish News about how Israel could basically remedy any, any weaknesses in the NHS, weaknesses that presumably we had discovered during the pandemic. Because let's not forget, there is the Pfizer connection. Israel 
rolled out Pfizer um, and became a test bed for Pfizer. But clearly, Israel believed that NHS has a lot of data and they want a pull on that data. And this has moved forward into the memorandum of understanding between the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Israel and the UK Foreign Common Commonwealth Development Office, where in 2021, they were discussing uh, developing a roadmap. And the roadmap was going to include many different topics. It was going to include genomics, we're talking health, we're talking science. I think if we jump to the next slide, you'll see some of the categories that um, were going to be included in that roadmap. And there's quite a fair few and then if we see they were planning it in 2021, but that has actually come to fruition now. And we're going to jump forward to now the 2030 roadmap for UK-Israel bilateral relations, of which there are plenty. Um, and I, I have to say that I'm just going to concentrate for a minute on science and health. But I would say to everybody, go to that roadmap and have a look. So if we look at, have, have a look at science and innovation, we can see that this was all started in 2011. And since 2011, there have been 250 partnerships with Israeli technology and innovation companies. And that's had a 1.2 billion economic impact to the UK. Then looking at health um, for the next one, um, and you can see that, again, it says Israel is a significant partner for Britain's NHS. And there's quite a few companies that you'll you'll know the names of there, Innovate, etc., UKRI, they're, they're all in it together. But there are even more connections with Israel. So I want to introduce you to the NHSA which some of you may not have heard of. And this is the Northern Health Science Alliance. And this is a health and sci life sciences partnership between the leading NHS trusts and universities in Northern England. So this was established in 2011. And I have to say, this is the authoritative agency that works on behalf of the North's leading universities and NHS trusts. So let's look at the collaboration that they have with Israel. And you can see just on this one screenshot at the bottom of the screen, you've got the State of Israel Ministry of Eco Economy and Industry. You've got the UK Israel Tech Hub. You've got the, um, which is actually the Dangor Health Initiative. And we were speaking about David Dangor a moment ago. The British Embassy in Israel and UKRI Research in England. And then if we look further on at the NHSA, we can see that they did mark a new phase of partnership in May 2022. And there you can all see them um, very proudly holding up the next phase of their partnership. And this did jump on very quickly because if we go to the next slide, you'll see that that has resulted in cutting edge technology to improve mental health. Now, this follows the NHSA's parallel pandemic report. Um, but if you look then further on, and I'm literally just presenting you with the evidence, is that the NHS will be using Taliaz's artificial intelligence software platform, Predictix. Now, this is for psychiatrists and GPs, and apparently this is going to put mental health on the map. And the reason that they're doing this is because they say that many patients, or at least many people in the North, seem to suffer with more mental health 
um, illness. So the NHS collaboration has actually been officially recognised now, the NHSA collaboration with the UK government. And on the 23rd of March, um, it was, you can see the picture there of James Cleverley, the government pledged to support for NHS partnership, NHSA partnership to tackle global healthcare challenges. So um, when we look at that in a little bit more detail, one, one thing that I will say, which I was quite shocked about, was that Tava do supply, Tava, the pharmaceutical companies, the company does supply one in seven of our medicines that we receive in the NHS. And there's a little bit more detail there, which will tell you about the roadmap. And again, it says there, as I've just said, Israel is a significant partner for the NHS, supplying one in seven of all medicines. So jumping on to look at the UK-Israel tech report, those just a few statistics there to show you how embedded Israel, the Israel government and Israel innovation companies and tech companies are in the UK um, works out to £1 billion of gross value added economic impact. And I'd just like to add there that it says 250 tech partnerships and it talks about unicorns. And a unicorn company as defined by Fortune is a privately held startup company with a valuation of 1 billion or more. And you can see in the UK there we have 144 unicorns and in Israel 98. So UK and Israel, Europe's, te Europe's tech superpowers. So my question would be really, you know, that we do have a lot of involvement with Israel, but this is ultimately down to our politicians. And we'll talk about it a bit more on extra, but just as a, a final on this segment, we do have an APPG um, for Israel. Um, and I've also got a screenshot of the members there. Uh, there's plenty of lords and ladies, and also you'll see Theresa Villiers there as well on the UK current APPG Israel group. So just the tip of the iceberg, but I just wanted to highlight the, where it interlinks. Great deal of questions uh, to be asked, uh, Debbie, over that, uh, about the interest, the people, the loyalties, what they're really doing and what's really happening with our data and information. So thank you very much for that in-depth look. Okay, let's come back to uh, digital ID then. And... Uh... Well, let's have a look at what the EU is doing. So they have uh, published, well, after two years of negotiations, they've published their digital identity reform uh, documents. Uh, it's called the EIDAS regulation. This is going to establish a fully harmonized framework for a legally binding identify, identification of people, proving attributes about them uh, and, logging for, and for logging into websites and so on. So what are we talking about with the attributes? Well, if you remember what the British government had published on digital identity, uh, they were saying that one type of digital identity which could be developed under the trust framework is similar to a wallet, uh, but created securely on your device that allows you to store various trusted pieces of information about yourself. We call these pieces of personal information attributes, and you can choose when and with whom you share them, uh, but probably never your whole wallet of information. Uh, and it says uh, this could include disclosing details from the government, such as your legal name, date of birth, right to reside, to work or to study, as well as details from your organization, from other organizations, such as your professional qualifications or your employment history. 
Um, so, uh, well, the question then is, well, what about GDPR in the EU? Surely that is going to protect people. Well, actually not, uh, because uh, they are beating the GDPR by excluding digital ID from, the, from EU-wide regulation. So member states can set their own rules. So, for example, in Ireland, they have their own rules set with respect to for example, Facebook. So if Facebook Ireland were to demand data on an individual, uh, that would be okay EU-wide because the Irish regulator says so and it would completely subvert GDPR, for example, under the, this new uh, regulations. Uh, well, what about uh, the wallet itself? Uh, well, the, the original idea was that the wallet should be open source software entirely uh, and that people should be able to see how that works. But in fact, they've rolled back on that somewhat and the, whereas the software that might appear on your phone uh, would be open source. The server end of it uh, would be not uh, open source, so the, no idea what is happening uh, at that end. Uh, and then we have the question uh, of uh, uh, the uh, issue of, of uh, the websites themselves and any websites we might be communicating with, because of course, uh, over the years, uh, more and more websites are using SSL to protect, to encrypt communications between the browser and the website. Uh, and in fact, what the EU is doing uh, with this, it is creating uh, what they're calling quacks. Uh, and uh, this, is <laughs> this is basically uh, a requirement that uh, the browser manufacturers put a government issued certificate onto the browser, uh, a root certificate onto the browser, which then the potential of this is really significant in ter terms of security because what they could do is they could put, uh, create effectively a, a man in the middle attack. So you would think that you're connecting to the UK column or you would think that you're connecting to the BBC. Uh, but in fact, what you're connecting to is an EU government website, which is masquerading as, uh, or at least as far as the SSL certificate is, is concerned, is pretending to be uh, another website. So they could effectively route your traffic through uh, a website of their own in order to work out because at the moment if an SSL connection they could they can know that you're connecting to a particular website but they don't know which pages you're browsing or what you're doing there because that's all encrypted they want to get that level of detail uh, so uh, <laughs> this new situation uh, is pretty significant uh, if the EU pursue, uh, continues to pursue it but this was agreed today uh, and, uh, well, we need to see what the next steps are. We've got to remember that this type of policy is being rolled out right across the Western world, at least EU, uh, UK and the United States. Uh, and uh, so whatever uh, one lot does, the others uh, follow on with. But we've seen the same type of uh, exercise or the same type of policy through the legislation in the UK as well. OK, and ducks, I think, come into this. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's, yeah. Yes, yes. If we want to know more about quacks, uh, have a look at this Electronic Frontier Foundation article, What the Duck, uh, Why an EU Proposal to Require Quacks Will Hurt Internet Security. Now, this was published in February 2022. Uh, it becomes relevant as of today. Okay, thank you very much for that, Mike. Uh, well, interesting news today because lots of uh, deep dives into rabbit holes, which take us to surprising places. Uh, I've been looking at what's been going on under the surface in Ukraine. And uh, the Kiev Independent came up with this very interesting article, which I paid attention to. It said, Clooney Foundation for Justice brings alleged Russian crimes to German prosecutors. Now, I also look at um, a huge amount of information and, and particularly films taken at the time of, of the war on the Eastern Front. 
And uh, I found something, uh, I can't call it black humour, but there's something just wrong in this, that uh, uh, Russian crimes should be taken to German courts. But uh, anyway, let's follow it through. What was the Clooney Foundation for Justice? What was the report? It said over the past week, the Clooney Foundation for Justice, a non-government organisation founded by Amal and George Clooney, filed three cases with German federal prosecutors to investigate crime committed by the Russian forces in Ukraine. And, uh, and it went on to say that the Kharkiv Oblast case is filed jointly with Truth Hounds, a Ukrainian NGO investigating atrocities committed by Russian forces. And that links into another thing called the docket, which I haven't got time to do. But um, these are all under the surface networks, NGOs, government agencies that here are supposedly rooting out the war crimes of the Russians. But if we go to the Clooney Foundation for Justice website, very, very glossy. I haven't run the sound on this, but the lovely couple uh, are working for human rights. Uh, Amal herself is a highly qualified uh, barrister, so she's clearly doing a lot of good work across the world in human rights. But my questions here about what's actually happening uh, with this organization in Ukraine, but you get an idea of, of the organization. It says their mission is to provide free legal support to victims of human rights abuses in over 40 countries around the world. It wages justice to create a world where human rights are protected and no one is above the law. I couldn't find anything to do with Israel on this particular site, but it was a relatively short visit, so I may have missed it. Uh, but I always look at the board. Uh, here are the lovely couple, uh, Amal and uh, George Clooney. And then if we have a look at some of the other directors, it, it, the board directors, it gets uh, interesting for me because we've got Zani minton Bedos, uh, She's editor-in-chief of The Economist. Uh, we've got a gynecologist. We've got the president and vice chair of Microsoft. Uh, we've got creative, a creative agency. And um, uh, we've got more legal people. And I'll just bring this one in. We've also got the president of the Ford Foundation. And this is where I begin to get nervous. What are we dealing with? Are we dealing with philanthropy or are we dealing with massive global corporations? Uh, but we've also got a prof uh, Professor Philip Webb. Um, another barrister. So not surprisingly, uh, a lot of law people, as you would expect. I'm just gently asking questions about how the other interests work. But if we follow the main lady through, I was really interested to see that the government has already been using her. Uh, this is back from uh, uh, the UK Special Envoy for Media Freedom from April 2019, September 2020. Uh, let's just bring in the the big uh, red arrow. Um, it says as a barrister, she specialises in international law and human rights. She provides advice to governments. She's very highly ranked. Um, but she also served as a senior advisor to Kofi Annan when he was the UN's envoy on Syria uh, as counsel to the UN's inquiry on the use of armed drones. And then she was appointed to the UK Attorney General's expert panel. So this is a lady who is able to move through the legal system, the government system, but with a private organization which is working to do good work, apparently in Ukraine, to get these cases to German courts to try the Russians. I don't know. I feel uncomfortable. Um, but uh, if we follow it through, Miss uh, um, Clooney herself was also working some time ago with Lord Neuberger uh, on the Media Freedom Legal Panel. 
And uh, so this is reported on the government website. Uh, there was some um, detail here. The panel will convene for the first time at the global conference to defend media freedom. So this is a bit more of don't worry We've got it all under control. You just stay at home and relax. Uh, we'll bring in another quote from Jeremy Hunt. He said, stemming the tide of violence against journalists requires political will, diplomatic pressure, and a legal framework to support countries to improve. Uh, Britain's, of course, Britain doesn't need to improve, but we're going to help other countries. The independent high-level panel of experts consists of the best legal minds from across the globe. Um, how were they chosen, I wonder? Together, they'll develop and promote legal mechanisms to help prevent reverse media abuses. And uh, if I just bring in another one here, should come in. Uh, here's Amal Clooney herself. The high-level panel of legal experts brings together leading international experts on media freedom, including judges, lawyers, academics from all over the world. I look forward to working alongside them to develop advanced legal frameworks that can protect media freedom around the world. So this all looks lovely. Uh, the second thing I looked at after the board uh, was our partners. And let's just pop this up on screen uh, because then it gets very interesting because the top one is the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Uh, but we've also got the Ford Foundation. We've also got Microsoft. So my question as a, a rel relatively ill-informed member of the British public is just what are these people doing and what are their interests? And are they really government or big business? How does this system work? Because it looks very murky to me. But remember, these have the power to try and call the Russians into court for war crimes. However, we have other war crimes taking place around the world and those people are not being called in. So is this bias or is it um, just a system that doesn't work properly? I'll leave that question for the audience today. Uh, You've got some more? Uh, sorry, I have, Mike. Yes, sorry, I can resist this. This is the Global uh, Conference for Media Freedom, which I mentioned. Uh, and this is uh, just a really short comment here because it's got Canada and UK involved. So they're apparently rooting for world media freedom. And I have to ask what, what could possibly go wrong. And uh, my research has just touched me on this. Um, I'm going to call it Twitter. X is a bit complicated for me. Uh, so we were looking at the Twitter page. And uh, let's bring in an arrow so you can see what I saw. Well, Robert Peston was uh, following various things, an Estonian blogger. And um, this one caught my eye here. Ukrainian patriot advisor to the Ministry of Eternal Affairs of Ukraine, founder of the Institute of the Future, official enemy of Russian propaganda. So that sounded like a good uh, little organization. And I just got uh, two images here, Visions for Democracy, a support report, um, and NDI expert workshops on the future of democracy. So people connected with Ukraine are working to get their form of democracy worldwide. Sounds a slightly dubious scheme to me. People dedicated to the long view. For over 50 years, we've been helping leaders understand their urgent challenges with an eye for future outcomes, diverse minds, better personality uh, possibilities. So um, again, I'm going to leave the audience to think about this, but I didn't really feel very comfortable with these organizations and their ultimate agenda. Okay, let's uh, move on to net zero and uh, wind power, actually. So uh, first of all, 
few days ago, the UK announced uh, a new UK-Germany partnership to boost renewable energy and deliver net zero. So that's pretty exciting, isn't it? Uh, it's been agreed to help secure safe, affordable and clean energy for consumers in both nations uh, and for the, long, uh, for the long term and to bolster energy security under the partnership signed in London by Energy Security Secretary Claire uh, Coutinho and Germany's Vice-Chancellor Robert Habeck. Uh, the UK and Germany have uh, reaffirmed their shared ambition and commitment to net zero and progressing the energy transition. That couldn't sign any better. Uh, so let's have a, just a quick look at, uh, at what it is they're talking about here. They're going to enhance cooperation in renew renewables, notably offshore wind and electri electricity interconnection. Now, the offshore wind bit is what we, we're going to focus on in a second, because maybe that ain't so possible. But let's, uh, let's look at what else they're saying. They're going to share industry knowledge and expertise. Uh, for carbon capture, utilization and storage, including cross-border support, uh, transport of CO2. I would have thought the weather does that, but anyway, okay. Uh, strengthen and promote regional and global energy security, including discussions on winter preparedness, uh, get the snow tires on, uh, security of uh, infrastructure and supply chains, uh, share best practices and lessons learned on industry buildings and heat decarbonization uh, and so on. Uh, but here's the problem. Uh, we are seeing uh, offshore wind farm projects, well, as the Telegraph describes it here, hold and sinking. Uh, so these projects are not going ahead. Two cancelled off the east coast of the United States uh, this week uh, and others uh, also having the same problem. And the question is why? Uh, well, here is uh, Prismian Group. Uh, this is one of a few, a very few companies that provide the cables that connect the offshore wind farm to the mainland or whichever coastline that uh, it needs to connect them to. Uh, and they're saying uh, back in uh, late September there that uh, they will be displaying their most important range of products and technologies for the offshore wind farming industry, including submarine power transmission cables, such as inter-array cables up to 66 kilovolts and AC export cables up to 275 kilovolts and so on. But the problem is they can't supply them uh, because there are only a few companies that are supplying these cables and they can't manufacture them uh, to the uh, speed that's needed. So uh, already there's a 10-year waiting list in most cases, or at least the, the intention to purchase has to be signed uh, 10 years prior to its need. Uh, and this is one of the reasons that these wind, uh, offshore wind farm projects are failing. Uh, the other reason is insurance, uh, because the problem is that, uh, that these companies um, are... Uh, the, the technology is changing, therefore the, the cables themselves are changing. That's the insurance companies are putting the prices up because of the new technology and the price of insurance for the lifetime of the cable and the lifetime of the wind farm is off the charts. It is almost making it uneconomic. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, we're not just talking about uh, offshore wind that is tied to the uh, seabed. We're also talking about floating offshore wind. And so Japan and uh, Denmark have uh, agreed to, to tie up on floating offshore wind technology, according to the Japan Times. Uh, and the, the technology involved in the cables between these and the shore is even more complex. Uh, so this is a problem that they don't seem to have an answer for at the moment. No, because the thing doesn't make sense. But uh, I think people are beginning to think it through. Uh, Debbie, let's end then uh, with, oh, well, a, a trailer from Netflix. 
yeah, we've gone from net zero to Netflix. That was neat, wasn't it? Um, see what I did there. Uh, so this Leave the World Behind is a Netflix film. Now, this is a 2023 USA apocalyptic film. What's different about that, you'd say? It's got Julia Roberts in, Kevin Bacon. It's got a pretty good cast. Uh, the logo is There's No Going Back to Normal. So what's special about it? Well, I'll tell you what's special after we've seen a little trailer from Leave the World Behind. I'm so sorry to bother you. You must be Amanda. Why did you come here? In my line of work, you have to understand the patterns that govern the world. They can help you see the future. And I knew something was coming. I don't understand. What do you mean? We are seeing ongoing cyber attacks across the country. The truth is much scarier. What is the truth? We're going to be okay, right? Aren't you the one who always said, if you're not paranoid by now, it's too late? Haven't you been picking up on what's going on out there? We've all been deserted. There is no going back to normal. So, leave the world behind. But as I looked further, I was quite surprised to see the next slide from First Post, which will tell you that Leave the World Behind, apocalyptic thriller produced by nobody other than Barack and Michelle Obama. So what did they know that now they're telling us? More doom and gloom and fear yes. and angst and suffering of the population. It's just brilliant, isn't it? Well, at least Kevin Bacon's find a job outside <laughs> of uh, mobile phone advertisements. Uh, that's what we can say. But anyway, okay. Uh, look, uh, we'll be back in a few minutes for, with Extra, and we do have an announcement to make to our members. So if you are a UK Column member, please uh, stick with us uh, for that. OK, that'll be good. And I'll just say, of course, our news today must have demonstrated that the idea that we are governed by elected MPs who um, make key decisions in Westminster is complete nonsense. And we have other forces who are controlling our lives. And it's beholden on all of us to be lifting those stones to see who those people are and to expose what they're doing. Thank you all very much for joining us. And uh, we'll be back for another news on Friday. Stay with us for extra. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.